All right, I want to welcome you this morning to Grace Community Church. Uh, we're going to switch up the way we meet together this morning. Uh, we're going to move the preaching of the word to the very beginning. And I want to tell you on the front end why I have a migraine and I cannot see anything. So I'm having trouble seeing and I think the longer we get into our service this morning, I'm going to have more trouble. So we're going to move it to the first and we're going to trust God. We're going to ask God for help this morning and that's what we're going to do now. So let's pray and then we're going to dive into God's word together. Father, we come to you today and God, we desire to worship you. Lord, you are worthy of all of our praise, Lord. And God, we pray that you would show us your glory this morning, that you would remind us of your glorious nature, Lord, that you would block out all the worries of this world and that you would draw our hearts to worship you. God, we gather around your word this morning, Lord, and we need it, God. Our spirits need your word like our body needs bread this morning and so lord we pray that you would instruct us today from your word that you would fill up our minds with truth and that you would incline our wills this morning to obey you and to honor you and god we pray that you would lift up the glorious gospel of jesus christ make us glad in our savior this morning in his name we pray amen all right, we're going to continue on today in our study of the Ten Commandments together. And this morning, we come to commandment number seven. Now, just to prepare you, there's going to be a moment here, here in just a second when, when some folks start uh, uh, coming in a little later thinking that they're in the middle of uh, prayer time and they're going to be in the middle of the sermon. They're going to think, man, I didn't know the time change was in the uh, uh, middle of July. So just prepare yourself for that. Uh, let's begin our time this morning by reading God's Word together. And just like last week, our passage will be quick. Uh, this is the seventh commandment, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18. This is God's Word this morning. And you shall not commit adultery. Simple and short, but we're going to unpack that together. This morning we're going to dig into God's Word, what God's Word says about marriage. Now I want to start out with this reminder and just kind of say this on the front end, that the church has not always gotten this commandment right. Um, and I'll give you an example of this. In 1631... There was a religious controversy that's seldom mentioned. The royal printers in London, England, they made an error while attempting to print a copy of the King James Bible. And copies were circulated uh, that omitted the word not from the seventh commandment, changing the commandment to read this way, you shall commit adultery, okay? Talk about an oversight. Little bitty error, three little words. But how important is that concept of negation that we should have learned in elementary school, middle school grammar? I mean, that's a re really small error, but a really big 
deal. Now, this was the cause of public outrage at the time. And this Bible began to be referred to as the Wicked Bible. And it's still referred to that way in church history. There are copies of the King James Bible that were printed with that alteration of the seventh commandment. You shall commit adultery. But even more broadly than that, than that error, the church has not always been faithful to proclaim what God's word teaches about marriage and about human sexuality. An example of this would be as we read the teachings or the views of the early church fathers on marriage and human sexuality, we see that that their basic view of marital sex is that it was to be tolerated as a necessary concession to life in a fallen world. Now that was the view of the church for for almost a thousand years, for over a thousand years. From Tertullian to Ambrose to Augustine to to Aquinas, uh, we see this put forward that marital sex is tolerated, but the really holy path, if you really want to walk with God, is celibacy. On the one hand, you could do this, it's, it's tolerated, but the real way to please God was to live the celibate life. And an example of this would be that the Church of Rome prohibited marital sex on church holy days. And Luther tells us that by the, by, by the time he comes along, those holy days numbered over 180 days every year. This was the prevailing view of the church of Jesus Christ. So we haven't always gotten this commandment right. There's been significant error in this area. And one of the things that God accomplished through the Protestant Reformation is a a restoration of sorts, a revival of a biblical view of marriage, including not the toleration, but the celebration of marital love and we can see an example of the biblical view of marriage in Genesis chapter 2 verse 25 which reads this way and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed and so the Bible teaches that marital love is a good gift of God, not merely something that we tolerate as part of life in a fallen world, and definitely not something that makes you a second-tier Christian. Okay, And so we see God's design for marriage is that it's good. It's a good gift of God. Now, one of the things that begins to take shape in the first two chapters of the Bible is the doctrine of human sexuality. What does the Bible teach about human sexuality and about marriage specifically? And this is really, really important in our day that we lay this foundation well. Okay, Our doctrine of marriage and, and human sexuality is built on a foundation, and that foundation better be, it better be the doctrine of creation 
And we're going to talk about why in just a moment. Marriage is put forward in Genesis 1 and 2 as a creation ordinance. It's built in the very fabric of how God designed this world and how this world is designed to function by its creator. Marriage is at the very center of that purpose and that design. Before I was a full-time pastor at GCC, I worked in the structural steel industry. And one of the things that you learn working in and around structural steel is how important it is to set steel columns plumb exactly straight from the ground. For example, a large column, a large steel column that's out of plumb, uh, merely a centimeter, five feet off the ground, five feet off of elevation, if you go up to that same, the top of that same column, say 40 feet off the ground, that column that was off a centimeter, five feet off the ground, is now off up to five feet. The higher you get, the worse the error. In other words, errors, you need to learn this, errors you make at the foundational level magnify themselves exponentially downstream. And it's the same way with Christian theology. If you make an error at the foundational level of the doctrine of creation, that error is going to magnify itself big time, mega, the further downstream you get. You get creation wrong, that's not going to be this little vacuum. It's going to affect all kinds of things and even things that you would have never expected downstream. In other words... The reason we have so many competing views on human sexuality in our day is because we have so many views on the origins of the universe in our day. And so once you understand that principle, it ought not to surprise you at all that the same culture that rejects the Genesis account of creation and God's design in this world is the same culture that now, present tense, can't even tell you the difference between a man and a woman. Why? The foundation is cracked. They have no doctrine of creation. And as the saying goes, it's all downhill from there. You get creation wrong, you don't have any foundation, you have no guardrails, you have no governor, you have no safety mechanism, it's all downhill from there. And so the creation, the, the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, it defines marriage for us. And it defines it in at least three ways. I'll mention each of the three. Number one. It defines marriage as the exclusive, as an exclusive covenant vow, an exclusive pledge. That's number one. Number two, it describes this exclusive pledge as between one man and one woman. And it's crazy how you have to say some of the most uh, uh, obvious things in the universe, but we got to say that today. And number three... Marriage is defined as this covenant-exclusive commitment with an intention to become one flesh. And we see each of those three aspects in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now let's break down each aspect for just a moment. This is laying that foundation. We want to know it well. We want to lay it well. We want to have a strong doctrine of creation. Moses tells us in Genesis 2 that by God's design, by God's intention, a man is to leave and cleave. That that was the old King James words there. Or to leave and to hold fast. Okay? He was to leave that parental unit, father and mother, and he was to cleave or to hold fast to his wife. In other words, marriage from the very beginning was to be this exclusive vow to hold fast, to be faithful to your spouse. Now, contrast this to the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world has no foundation for why marriage should be exclusive. Why should marriage be exclusive? Why not open? Why not, you know, I'll be faithful to this person, and then when I get ready to be faithful to someone else, I'll be faithful to that person. Why not that? And the answer to that is because creation says, hold fast to your wife. It's exclusive pledge of fidelity from the very beginning. Moses also tells us that by God's design, the two are supposed to become one flesh. A new family unit is created. And marriage is the mingling of the two into the one. The man and his wife into this new one flesh union, body and soul, for all of life. The Bible teaches us that this bond is only supposed to be broken by death. And Paul says that in Romans 7. It's a bond, it's a pledge that's good for life. The bond of marriage. Now... Contrast this again to the unbelieving world. It has no foundation for why marriage is only supposed to be between two people. Why not three? Why not three? Why not five? Why only two? Creation tells us from the very beginning, two become one. This is God's design. This is God's purpose in marriage. Also, according to God's design, through this one flesh union, God has designed to populate the earth. Now again, the unbelieving world has no foundation, no foundation for why marriage should be between a man and a woman. Why not between a man and a man? Why not between a woman and a woman? The Bible answers this from the very beginning. Creation screams to us. By the way, God has designed this world. Genesis 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. From the very beginning, homosexuality, by necessity, by its nature, it cannot fulfill one of the God-given purposes for marriage, procreation. Therefore, it is against creation. It is unnatural and it is an abomination to God. In our generation, marriage was redefined to include same-sex marriage. 
but this is a contradiction of terms. Same-sex marriage is no more a marriage than a meat-eating vegetarian is a vegetarian. It doesn't work. You can't say it. It's against its, the very nature of marriage. It's a contradiction of terms. It's against creation from the very beginning. And so Genesis 1 and 2, we see these foundations being laid, the doctrine of creation, the, the, the beginning of the doctrine of human sexuality is beginning to take shape. But also in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the foundation of what we would refer to today as complementarian theology. Now, by that phrase, we don't mean, you know, uh, 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 you know, be nice theology, complement each other, okay? Complementarian theology is a term that's used to describe the differences between men and women from the very beginning by God's design, by, by the nature of how God made this world. God designed men and women with a complementary nature. They complement each other. They go together. And you see this from the very beginning. In Genesis 1, we are told that God made both man and woman in his image. And so we see a fundamental equality between men and women in God's word. They both bear the image of God. In this sense, they are equal before God. They are image bearers of God. Yet we see that from the very beginning, God has designed men and women differently in order that they would function in a complementary way. And this complementary design is seen, listen, not only in biology and their anatomy, but also in their roles that God has assigned to them. Adam is leader from the very beginning. Eve is the helper, Moses says, the helper suitable to Adam, the helper fit for him. They go together by God's design. They were made to function in a complementary way. Now, we understand that, okay? Biscuits and gravy, they just go together. There's some things that just go together, okay? Cookies and milk, or whatever else you're thinking this morning, steak and potatoes, they go together. They're better together. They complement each other. And that's the way God made this world. Men and women are better together. They're designed for one another. They are made together. They, they, they complement each other. This is complementarian theology. Now, foundational for our understanding of the seventh commandment is to understand that the gift of human sexuality is only meant to be enjoyed inside this complementarian covenant context of marriage. Those are the guardrails by design from the very beginning. In other words, the sexual union is not supposed to happen outside of the holistic union between a husband and his wife. Body and soul, they belong to each other. The whole lifelong exclusive union, they belong to each other. 
The sexual union is a piece of that larger union that's created by marriage. In other words, we have no right to express or satisfy our sexual desires before marriage or outside of marriage. Only inside of marriage as instituted by God. Yet it's not something that we are merely permitted to do inside of marriage. We are given this gift to be celebrated, to, it, to be enjoyed to the glory of God inside of covenant marriage. And so if you compare human sexuality to a fire, and it is like that, then marriage is like the oven. The fire is meant to burn in the oven. It's meant to burn hot. It's a fire. That's how God made that. But it's meant to be confined by God's holy law. It's meant to burn in the oven of marriage. It's not a wildfire. Human sexuality is not a wildfire that's supposed to burn everything down in its path and burn your house down. It's supposed to be a holy fire confined by God's law that burns for God's glory within the covenant of marriage. And part of the good news for us is that this gift will never be better than it is when it's enjoyed according to the will of the one who designed it. According to the blessing of the one who made the gift. Nobody knows human sexuality like the God who made human sexuality. Nobody can enjoy marital love without shame unless they enjoy it under the blessing of the one who gave us that gift. And so the seventh commandment, it's meant to protect this holy institution in God's word. It's meant to protect marriage. It's meant to hold up marriage as holy and honorable. And once you understand that foundation, we understand that adultery, the prohibition mentioned in the seventh commandment, is the breaking of this holy institution. It's the breaking of that marriage covenant. Hebrews 13 says it this way, let marriage be held in honor among all and the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And so the seventh commandment forbids sexual intercourse before marriage or outside of marriage, adulterous intercourse, but just like we saw in all the other commandments, it's broader than that. God's law is broader than that. I'll give you just a few examples of how some of the Protestant catechisms handle this commandment to give us a sense of the broader scope. This comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 71. The question is, what is required in the seventh commandment? And the answer comes, the seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity. 
in heart, speech, and behavior. Notice a couple of things there. This is not you and Jesus. This is not just you and Jesus of what's going on with you and Jesus. We are called to do things not only to protect our own purity, but the purity of our neighbor, not our own. And then notice this. It's not just this outward thing, uh, you know, this external thing. This commandment deals with what's in our heart. And not only what we do, but the, even the things that we say with our mouth. There's a broadness here. Westminster Catechism again, number 72. What is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbids all unchaste thought, word, and action. Again, we see the spirituality of the law. This is what Jesus shows us in the Sermon on the Mount. He shows us the true intent of God's commandments. It's not just this external thing. That's the error of the Pharisees. They thought they were righteous before God because they kept God's law in this external way. They felt good about themselves because they never literally killed anybody or literally committed adultery. And Jesus drives God's law to the level of the heart, the spirit of man. Heidelberg Catechism, number 108. What does the seventh commandment teach us? And the answer comes. That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives, both inside and outside of holy marriage. In other words, the scope of the commandment includes every sexual sin that distorts the nature of marriage, holy marriage. This would mean all extramarital sexual intimacy. It would also exclude all premarital sexual intimacy. Prohibited by God. God says don't do that. The judge, the king, says no. This is his law. This would include, this prohibition would include all illicit sexual activity, prostitution, self-stimulation, homosexuality, polygamy, polyamory, all, hope, all prohibited by God's law. God has spoken to these things. Our king has spoken. He's given us guardrails of how the gift of human sexuality is to be enjoyed and to be used for his glory. Also prohibited would be all acts of sexual violence prohibited by God. This would include rape, pedophilia, molestation, any form of sexual abuse prohibited by God. Viewing pornography is a breach of the second commandment. Jesus says that unlawful divorce and remarriage is a breach of the second commandment. You see the broadness of the command. The commandment also forbids all the things that lead up to these sins. All the things that get us in the place of committing these type of Acts of rebellion against God. One of the things I thought about this week is the vast majority of those in the church 
that fall into an adulterous affair do so by developing inappropriate friendships with those of the opposite sex that are not their spouse. In other words, friendships can, be, uh, can begin in this casual way, but without guards in place, they can develop into an inappropriate level of friendship. And then all of a sudden, emotions are thrown in, and they're blind in reason, and you're getting dragged into something further than you ever planned. For the most part, before adulterers ever share a bed together, they are closer relationally than they ever should have been. So the commandment not only forbids the act, but all the other acts that we should have stopped on the way to committing those acts. Another example of this would be the things that we wear that can tempt others to sexual sin. This is one of the areas that the Bible speaks to is modesty in dress. And God's word applies this commandment especially to women. Listen to the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Women should adorn themselves, listen, in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Sisters, there is a difference between dressing to appear attractive and dressing to appear seductive. There's a difference. You need to learn that difference. Just like Jesus tells us that it is a sin to look with lust at at another man's wife, it is also a sin to desire that lustful gaze from men who are not your husband. If you desire that, if you dress in such a way to get that, that is a breaking of the seventh commandment. Now, what you wear cannot make anybody else sin. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But it can be a temptation to sin. Also important here is the internet. Think of how many breaches of the seventh commandment started right there with connectivity in our modern world. You could say it this way. This is just an objective fact. The internet is the greatest purveyor of pornography in the history of the world, period. Not even close. Guarding what you see as a follower of Jesus Christ has never been more important than it is right now. Illicit images are constantly available in never-ending supply, and they can be consumed in so-called privacy. So-called privacy. All you need is a smartphone. Parents, this is one of the places where we should engage this battle. If you hand your child a smartphone without preparing them to use that for God's glory, without taking steps to protect your children, it's like handing them an automatic weapon and saying, good luck. It's like handing them a nuclear weapon and saying, "Hope, hope it goes well with you. This is dangerous stuff. We ought to be guarded against it. The consequences of adultery are serious. In other words, this is a big sin in God's word. It's not a little little deal. 
And one of the things that's going to really help you is to make this connection that you may have never made before, that adultery is a sin against God. Yes, I'm not taken away at all. It's a lie to your spouse. It is treason to your spouse. It is a sin against your spouse. It is heartbreaking to your spouse and your children. But you'll never see it like you ought to see it until you see it as a sin against God. When Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife to commit adultery, Joseph responded with these words in Genesis 39. He says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It's when you're looking for like a translation here in the Bible. You mean against Potiphar? And Joseph said, No. How could I sin against God in this way? David does the same thing, except he takes that language vertical after he commits adultery. And he says this in Psalm 51, verse 4. He says this in his confession to God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You never see your sin like you ought to see your sin until you see the vertical nature. I have rebelled against my God. I have sinned against the creator, the king, and the judge of the whole universe. Sin is against God. Committing sexual sin is a violation of God's rights over your body. God made you. God gave you a body. God gave you a body to glorify Him, to serve Him as your King. And sexual sin is an act of rebellion against our Creator. The seventh commandment reminds us that one of the ways we show loyalty to our God is by showing loyalty to our spouse. Seriousness of this sin is seen in God's judgment upon this sin. Because sin is against God, God will hold us accountable for our sexual sins. This is clear in God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? God's word. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the Bible teaches that there's one way to heaven. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Jesus. There's one way to heaven, but there are a million different ways to hell. A million. Incalculable different ways to get there and one of those paths in God's word a surefire way to judgment is the path of sexual immorality God will hold us accountable for our sexual sins and so what does the Bible tell us to do it tells us to fight this battle to flee sexual sin to flee sexual temptation Paul says it this way 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, flee sexual 
immorality. Don't play with it. Don't kid glove it. Don't soft hand it. Get it out of there. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and not be burned by it? That's the question in Proverbs 5 in the context of adultery. And the answer is no. We must flee sexual immorality. God's word calls us to guard ourselves from temptation. Paul says this in Romans chapter 13 verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its lust. Make no provision for the flesh. That's God's word in this area. Jesus uses the most severe language in the entire Bible as it relates to how we are to fight and war against sexual sin. You might have thought Paul was rough. Okay? Listen to Jesus. Matthew 5, verse 29. If your right hand, cause, right eye, causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. That's Jesus. Get it out of there, the Bible says. If you are engulfed in pornography, it is completely reasonable. You're not crazy. It's reasonable. It makes sense to get it out of there. Ditch your computer. Ditch your smartphone. You're not a weirdo. You're making provision uh, from God's Word to, to make no provision for the flesh. Serious responses to sexual temptation. These are the kind of things that ought to be jumping in your mind when you think about cutting off your hand. Get it out of there. Don't play with it. If you are tempted to commit adultery in your workplace, it's as simple as this. Get another job. Cut off your hand. Get it out of there. Don't stay around it. Don't play with it. Get it out. The Bible calls us to pursue sexual purity as the people of God corporately to the point that this sin would not even be named among the church of Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 5. But sexual immorality must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. I mean, think about it. That's, a, that's the holy standard of God's word. Don't even let this be named among you as, as the people of God. This is proper for the holy people of God. And so Grace Community Church, I want to encourage you. Let's go after this. That standard of purity, that this sin would not even be named among us. Let's go after it with all of our hearts. That this cancer would be removed from us by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We live in an adulterous generation. No doubt about it. But let's ask God to manifest His power to keep His people pure. And let's ask Him to do that in our midst and in our generation. And so we have to fight this battle. we got to fight against sexual temptation. But before we enter this battle... We have to deal with our guilt first. Can't start fighting sexual sin until the guilt is taken away from us. 
And you can't deal with your guilt until you see it in the first place. And so this is where Jesus helps us. Our Savior helps us to think rightly. Jesus teaches us where sexual sin comes from. Where does it come from? Mark chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says this. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. Learn this well. Our sexual sin is not mainly a product of our environment. It is not mainly a product of our surroundings. Don't get me wrong. Fighting sexual sin externally is good and necessary. You should watch your relationships. You should control your use of the internet. You need to get your eyes off of modestly dressed people. But listen. Those things are not the reason for your sexual sin. They are the occasion that brought what was already inside of you to the surface. The reason is your sinful heart. That's what Jesus says. The enemy is inside of you. James 1 verse 14 says it this way. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Learn that well. The enemy is inside of you. Years ago, the media reported that upon their capture, both Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden were at the time of their capture, were in possession of massive amounts of pornography. Both of those men. Now, that's relevant because the entire Muslim world covers their women almost head to toe in those cultures. In other words, your solution cannot be everybody wear the hijab, and we only see your eyeballs, and then sexual sin goes away. It doesn't. These men lived in those cultures, grew up in those cultures, propagated those cultures all across the world, and yet they're still guilty of sexual immorality. Why? Because sexual immorality comes from within. It's not a cultural virus that gets on you. It's an innate condition within you both men and women, from our hearts comes sexual immorality. We have to learn that about ourselves. Fallen men and women have evil hearts of sexual immorality. That's what Jesus teaches. Mark chapter 7. Ligon Duncan tells a story about a famous evangelical pastor outside of Boston, who committed adultery in the 1980s. And he was subsequently removed from ministry. Ligon Duncan tells the story of a group of seminary students at Gordon-Conwell in Boston, later seeking out this pastor to privately interview him to learn 
what made this man commit this sin. And in that interview, one of them finally got the courage to ask him this question. I just don't understand. Why would you ever do such a thing? Why would a man like you ever commit adultery? To which the fallen pastor responded to the seminary student. He said, you're a Calvinist, right? And the young man said, yes. To which the pastor responded, so you believe there's enough evil in the human heart to blow up the world ten times over, right? Referring to the doctrine of total depravity. And that response, in the context of that question, it reveals our problem. We have a problem. So many times we say we believe something that we don't really believe. And this is an example of that. What God's word teaches about our fallen nature. The Bible teaches that the seed of every form of evil lives inside of our fallen hearts. The only reason that we don't commit more egregious sin is because we're restrained by God. And this is important. Those who are most vulnerable to committing adultery are those who think they have no capacity to commit this sin. Think it's beyond you. They're not aware that that evil seed lives inside of them. And I pray that every member of this church would have this testimony. I've always been taught that I was capable of committing adultery. Therefore, I've always been guarded against it. I guard myself against it because I'm capable of it. I know what God's word says about my heart. Outside the grace of God, it's wicked. It's deceitful. It will lie to me. And I need God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to guard me. The Bible tells us that when David committed adultery, 2 Samuel 7, he did it at a time where God's word says, when kings go out to battle, David found himself on the roof of his house. In other words, he was in a place that he never should have been. He never should have been there. The Bible says he should have been somewhere else. He should have been leading the armies of Israel into battle. He was in a place he never should have been. He was in an unguarded state. And he committed adultery with the, with the wife of Uriah, with Bathsheba. His sin drove him to, uh, into deeper sin. It drove him to commit murder. To have Uriah killed in battle. The Bible teaches that his sin cost him the life of his own son. Under God's judgment. The subsequent narrative shows us that his sin unleashed rebellion in his own family. Caused a daughter to be raped. Caused a son to be murdered. It caused one of his own sons to seek his own life. In other words, his sin created turmoil in his family. Listen, all of that 
for a few minutes in bed with a beautiful woman. Just a few minutes. It's been said about sin, it will take you further than you ever wanted to go and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. Now, friends, who did that? Who did that? The Bible tells us that a man after God's own heart fell into that sin. Do not even dream that you are beyond committing treason against your spouse. Here's what God's word says to all of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. One of the marks of maturity and, and, and spiritual growth is you grow in, in your own awareness that nothing is beyond you. And therefore, you need God. You need God's grace. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches us that our guilt runs deeper than we ever dreamed that it would. He says this in Matthew 5, when he's showing the spirituality of the seventh commandment, he says this, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, to notice attractiveness is not sin. It's just not. I'm sorry if you're, you know, uh, uh, just really, you know, a jealous spouse. I'm sorry, but that's not sin. What Jesus says is sin is to look in such a way that you satisfy your sinful desires. To look with the desire to have is sin, Jesus says. And he calls it committing adultery in your heart. And Jesus shows us with that one move the spiritual nature of God's law. Jesus also shows us that that sin, heart adultery, can drag us straight to hell. Jesus shows us that physical adultery, the external act, is the consummation of what was already inside of us. Before we ever commit adultery outwardly, we commit it on the inside. And that inward adultery is a form of spiritual adultery against God. It's one of the ways that we whore against God. That's one of, some of the uh, language that God uses to describe our sin. And so Jesus shows us that we are guilty. We're more guilty than we ever dreamed that we were guilty. We have stains that run deeper than we ever have hope to clean ourselves up. We're guilty. And that's one of God's intentions in the seventh commandment, that we would know that about ourselves. If we think we're not guilty, we don't need Jesus. But if we see the true state of things, if we see our guilt, we know we need to be saved. Who's going to take that guilt away? I can't scrub it clean. I got, I got stains here that I can't get off. I could wash myself for 40 years. Who's going to cleanse us? The Bible says that through Jesus Christ, there is gospel grace for sexual sinners. 
Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful for that? That God has done a mighty work in Jesus Christ that can take it away. As egregious as it is, as offensive as it is, to God it can be gone because of Jesus. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We're guilty. But the Bible says this, But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The pure one. The lamb of spotless purity. The Bible says that's the one who took our place. All our sins laid upon Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. And for all who trust Him, all of His righteousness freely granted to us. For all who repent and for all who believe the gospel, the Bible says we have, listen, a full forgiveness, a free forgiveness, and an eternal forgiveness of our sin, even our sexual sin. Adultery is not a scarlet letter in the kingdom of God. It doesn't mark you in such a way that you carry that mark or that status with you for the rest of your Christian life. A full forgiveness, a free forgiveness, and an eternal forgiveness purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The gospel tells us that the blood of Jesus and only the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from all of our sins. From all of our sins. But I want to close with this. Hear what Jesus says to the woman caught in the act of adultery. This is the story from John chapter 8. Jesus looks at a woman who's guilty. She's found grace in the eyes of Jesus Christ. And he asks her the question, Woman, where are your accusers? And they're gone. Jesus has dealt with the guilt. They are gone. They're nowhere to be found. And Jesus says this, Neither do I accuse you. Neither do I condemn you. Sweetest words that you will ever hear from the Holy One of Heaven is I do not condemn you. It's free forgiveness. It's glorious forgiveness. But then Jesus says these words. But go and sin no more. And I want to highlight that as we close. In Christ, and only in Christ, we are not condemned for our sins. They're gone. Jesus paid for them. He paid them in full. The wrath of God has been turned away from us. Our guilt has been transferred to the Lamb of God... Paid in full, he does not condemn us through Christ, because of Christ. Then he turns to us 
And he says, but go and sin no more. The gospel is glorious forgiveness of our sin, but it's more than forgiveness. The grace of God makes us new creation. We're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the old is gone and the new has come. That's a transforming power of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians 6. And after listing that nasty list of sins. Part of which were the sexually immoral. The adulterers and the homosexuals. Paul says this. Such were some of you. That used to be you. And he says, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Translation, that's not you anymore. That's gone. Jesus took that away. And the good news of the gospel allows us to live as free men and women. And God's word says this, so now, because of Jesus, glorify God with your body. Take that body that we use for sin to do acts of rebellion against God and use it in service to your king. Glorify God with your body. Magnify your Savior with your body. Praise God. And so I want to call us to that this morning. As forgiven men and women, transformed at the heart level by the power of the Holy Spirit, I want to call us to pursue purity. And to pursue it at the deepest level of who we are. To pursue purity of heart. The pure of heart. We're going to see God one day. The pure in heart will see God. And let's pursue this in fear of the Lord. Because our God says this in His law. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And God, we pray that you would teach us and speak to us and address us. God, we confess our guilt this morning. We confess our guilt to you. God, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray, God, that you would give us tremendous desires this day to be holy in this world. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would magnify your power in our midst to create a holy people in the midst of a corrupt generation. Please help us, Lord. Deliver us from sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.